Well, good morning. It's good to see you all out there. I was uh, a little nervous about it being New Year's Day, and somebody said there was something going on over there at that little school to the west of us. And uh, so I'm glad that y'all have uh, braved the circumstances and come. I'm not Drew Erickson. I know that it's hard to tell us apart. Uh, I am the one with hair. And that's how you can tell. That's to get back at him from trashing the Aggies. So if you will, pull out your Bible or your phone or your tablet and turn to Romans 5. And I'd like us to look at Romans 5, 1 through 5 today. And there Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So Paul begins this chapter by saying, therefore, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, And anytime you're reading or studying the Bible and your passage starts with therefore, you want to figure out why, because it refers to something before, right? Uh, There used to be a preacher that said you should figure out the wherefore, the therefore, which may be confusing, but in this case, uh, Paul has spent chapters three and four in an argument to show that we are justified by faith and not by works. That, you know, idea that we could be justified by works is sort of a default position for human beings. Certainly his Jewish readers had become involved in that and the Gentiles and the pagan religions are. And I would dare say today, if you go talk to one of your neighbors or coworkers and ask them why God should let them into heaven, they would say something along the lines of, well, I hope that the good I've done outweighs the bad. So, you know, God doesn't put fingers on this scale. You know, you're either saved or lost. But now that Paul established that doctrine of justification by faith, now he wants to show his readers and us of what that means to us and what that produces in our lives. Now, justified is another one of those theological terms. It's hard to remember always what they mean. But in the simplest definition, it is being right with God, being right with God. So when I, uh, when I first was working and they gave us a computer with a word processing program, it had this delightful feature. When you wrote a document, you could either align it on the left or align it on the right, or you could make the whole thing justified at all the margins. And I loved it because it was even and pretty and you know organized. Everything was aligned as it should be. And when we are justified by faith, we are aligned with God just as we should be. Now, justification is not our natural state. You're not born justified. You're actually born in sin. And sin separates us from God who is holy 
and can't tolerate sin. Paul's very clear over in Romans 3.23 when he says, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. And when you get down later in this chapter to verse 10, he even says we are, uh, as sinners, we are enemies of God. So the sinner who has not come to Christ and God are separated and at odds with each other. And, and we see that so much today in our culture, don't we? I have never seen such loud rebellion against God. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of social media because <clears throat> it really is a dumpster fire in many cases. But um, you, you see, we have come to a point now where not only do I not agree with God's standards, but I'm indignant that you do. And uh, in fact, maybe we should find a way to shut you up if you're still trying to talk about that. But those of us who have come to Christ in faith and we trust him alone for our forgiveness and our eternal life now have been aligned with him, have been justified. And Paul wants to go on now and tell us about blessings that we have that arise from our justification. And the first one, he says, is peace with God. Uh, Billy Graham used to write about that a lot. Uh, and the idea there is really not about emotions, but it is that we, in a sense, have, have come to terms with God. We're not at odds with God anymore. We are at peace. So whereas we might have been enemies before, uh, we might have been at enmity and opposition to God, now we are at peace with him, and he is not our enemy. And in fact, he's not out to get us. I know some people feel like God sits there in heaven with a telescope looking down onto earth waiting to pounce on anybody that makes a mistake. Uh, that's not the way he is. And uh, he actually sees us in his son, Jesus. Whereas we didn't have peace before, now we do. Now, it, it sounds really dramatic to, to get this idea uh, because especially if you grew up in church like I did, you know, you probably weren't out there mainlining heroin and robbing grocery stores and, and stuff like that. You know, I, I grew up in Sunday school. Uh, you know, I wore a suit when I was six weeks old. Uh, you know, and, and so you, you kind of tend to think of yourself as being pretty good uh, and certainly not an enemy of God. Uh, but Paul even says that, you know, we, before we come to Christ, we actually follow the way of the world which is a term he uses to really mean that part of the world that's in opposition to God. That's bad enough. But then he goes on to say, really, you follow the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan. So Satan really empowers us and drives us, in fact, to be separated from God until we come to God in Christ. So as we come, we are given this peace we are given this righteousness, and this all is a work of God and not a work of ourselves. Now, while I was this young kid going to Sunday school in little West Texas towns, and boy, after running around in boxer shorts all week, putting on a starch shirt and wearing a coat and tie on Sunday morning was torture, and I think my mom enjoyed that. Uh, but we went, and, uh, and I found myself, you know, looking back to be, have been a real legalist, uh, even though I was saved and I was baptized, I still 
thought about God in terms of really him being mad at me if I did the wrong thing and maybe out to punish me. And, and our Sunday school board helped me with that legalism because they printed envelopes every week for you to put your tithe in. And those envelopes had boxes on them to check. And, and so it was, uh, you read the daily Bible readings. It didn't say, by the way, read them daily. It said, read the daily Bible readings. And so I would read them Saturday night, but that's what legalists do, right? And that you tied, and, and so I could check all those boxes and feel like maybe I would live another week. So I, I constantly had this feeling, though, and this awareness uh, that I couldn't live up to God's standards. And, and I was right about that, right? We can't. He is completely holy. There is no scale. You violate one commandment. God says you violate them all. And, and we all have violated the commandments and we've all sinned. Uh, what I was ignorant of was the concept of grace and what that meant. Now, in my defense, most of the sermons I heard there, and we're talking the late 50s, early 60s, I know for some of you guys that's like a history book time, but nonetheless, um, we, we heard a lot more sermons about law than we did about grace. And uh, that was part of the sort of evangelistic movement of the time. Uh, but I very much absorbed that, and I didn't think much about grace. But then I came to understand that I did have peace rather than wrath with God. And that led me to have peace of mind. So I learned an objective truth, but it subjectively then as I began to learn that, I began to live in that and have greater peace. In verse two here, Paul says the second blessing is uh, that we have obtained this grace that he gives us uh, by faith and we stand in it. So we are eternally saved by God. It's not a one-time event and, and so ultimately what that means is that you as a believer can stand in front of this holy, righteous God without fear because you have been made right with him. And so he will then look on you just as he looks on his son with love and you will not experience his wrath. We are eternally saved. Uh, it, it's an odd thing to me that people can say, and quote John 3.16 and say, if we believe we have eternal life, but then say you can lose your salvation. I mean, if it's eternal, it lasts forever, doesn't it? And, and, and it could not be lost. So uh, we stand and live in grace when we come to salvation, but then every day after that, we live in grace as well, sustained by God. Over in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, and you may know this one by memory, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. So even that very faith that you exercised to come to Christ was given to you by God as a matter of grace. And so you stand in grace. It's also important, I think, for us to see 
uh, we, we do want to please God uh, and, and we fear God in the sense that we respect him and who he is, uh, but we don't live in fear of God's wrath uh, day by day. And it's important for you not to project the feelings that you have for your father onto God. Now, you might have had a father who was very, very strict, and you tend to think of God that way. You may have a father that was abusive and fickle, and you never knew what he was going to do. Uh, you might have had a father that was just completely absent. Uh, but none of those things are traits of our Heavenly Father, and we should learn about his traits from the Bible and, and not emotionally project, even though it's very tempting and common to do, but not project our feelings for our fathers uh, onto our Heavenly Father. There's a lot of uh, contemporary songs I know that obviously the writers are contemplating this because they talk about that God is for us and, and not against us. Probably heard those words a lot. Uh, but it's true that God is for us. And so over in Romans 8, 32, for example, he says, as God gave us his son, uh, he's gonna give us all the things that we need uh, for living. And he wants what is best for you. Now, he doesn't always want what you want. And sometimes what you want is not what's best for you. And, and after you've lived a few years, sometimes you will look back and say, man, I really wanted that. And I'm so glad that God didn't give it to me. As, as circumstances played out, that would have been bad for me. Uh, or maybe you realize, like, I would have loved to have inherited a million dollars when I was 18 years old. What would I have done with it at 18 years old? Well, I probably wouldn't have invested it. I'd have probably formed a band and bought a guitar and bought a fancy car and who knows what else and it would have been gone and I would have been a horrible person uh, and God knew better than to let me have that. He takes care of us and he does what's best for us. <clears throat> Paul also says this grace makes us rejoice uh, in the hope of the glory of God. So glory comes from God, it's part of his nature and his character, and uh, when we are with God in eternity, we're gonna get to fully experience the glory of God. Uh, Jesus said he'll return in the glory of the Father, and uh, Jude 24 says we will be in the presence of his glory. And so think about that for a minute. Uh, Look at the instances in the Bible where you do see manifestations of God's glory. Well, the first one I think about is that when angels appear uh, to men and women, generally they are so overcome with the radiance of their glory that they fall on their faces and that they're afraid. I mean, what's the most common words you hear first from an angel that appears to anybody? if you got the King James Version, it's fear not, right? Don't be afraid. Why would you be afraid? Well, because you as a sinner are standing in the presence of this being who is not a sinner and who also reflects and radiates the glory of God. So if that is true, and the transfigured Christ, for example, when he was on the mountain and uh, said that his clothes uh, began to shine brighter white than anything else that existed. Remember how Peter reacted to that? 
<coughs> Peter wanted to uh, build a booth uh, for Jesus and Elijah and, and all of them, and they would just stay there on the mountain forever. And, and that's kind of what a lot of church members do too, isn't it? Well, this is great. Let's just stay here. We don't want to go in the neighborhood. Uh, but exposed to the glory of Jesus, he wanted to stay there and be in that glory. So if those things are true, imagine what heaven will be like as you experience the glory of God every day. Uh, it's, just, it's hard to even get your head around that, isn't it? How that would be, but we do. It's gonna be great, it's gonna be wonderful uh, to see God and to see Jesus as he is. So those of us that once scorned God's glory and sinned and fell short of it are now going to be able to experience it. Some of these blessings that he says you know, happen now and some will only be realized later and our glorification is that way because not only are we going to see the Lord's glory, but we're going to be glorified in a manner as well. So 1 Corinthians 15, 43, for example, says that you know, our body, our physical body was sown in dishonor, okay? In sin, if you will. Uh, but it's gonna be raised in glory. So we're gonna be uh, morally perfect. We're gonna reflect the Lord and his glory. And our new body will be this spiritual body, not encumbered by uh, temptation, not encumbered by sin, not encumbered by illness or anything. And so as we're born, we reflect the image of the sinful Adam, the man, our first ancestor who sinned and was cast out of God's presence and who then brought sin and death into the world. But later we're gonna bear the image of Christ. First John 3, 2 says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now what exactly that means, I can't tell you. Uh, but I do mean that whatever we are now in weakness and in flesh is going to be glorified and made to be more like Christ or be made exactly like Christ, if you will, in that sense. So when he talks about the hope of glory here, and he uses that word hope in several places, uh, it, it means a little bit different in the New Testament than today. Today, uh, you would think of the word hope meaning the same as the word wish. As, look, when I was a teenager, there was a song that talked about wishing and hoping, uh, really directed toward a boyfriend, but wishing and hoping like they were the same thing. But hope in the Bible is not a wish. It's, it's a certain belief uh, that something you know is gonna happen in the future that helps you live today. And so we don't, wish that we will be glorified and we don't wish that we will be in the presence of God's glory, but we're certain that we will uh, and that our future glory is certain and we will be restored. You know, Adam, when he was created, had a, a sort of glory. He was created in the image of God and he was, he was kind of God's regent. He was kind of the king of the earth, if you will, and he was supposed to rule the earth. He was supposed to take care of the garden. He was supposed to rule the animals. He was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and spread the knowledge and glory of God over the face of the earth. 
and of course he lost that because of sinning and rejecting God's uh, will for him. But that glory of Adam will be restored to us in Christ and, and I would say even a greater glory uh, as we're fully conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Maybe a little hard to think about, but I'd like to reflect Christ's image. I try to do that today and I often fail. Uh, and I would like to be able to live that way for eternity and I will because of the grace that God has given me. Now, once we're glorified, another good thing is we won't ever know suffering. But, but of course, the bad news is that in the present, we do know suffering. And some of you over this past year suffered. Uh, some of you may have suffered in the sense of persecution for your faith, uh, but others of you just suffered, but you still suffered being in Christ. Some of you were sick, and uh, some of you were losing loved ones, losing friends to death. Some of you might have lost jobs. Some of you might be on a fixed income and our inflation has made it hard for you. Um, all these things are suffering. You know, Paul knew about suffering though, didn't he? When he writes this, it's not abstract for him. When he writes this, he writes this out of experience and he suffered more than I'm guessing any of us will do. Uh, he was beaten on multiple occasions. He was stoned, which I've never been stoned. I've had a rock stone at me, but usually when I'm speaking. But, uh, you know, it, that's got to hurt. Paul was stoned until he passed out and everybody thought he was dead. Uh, and then he got up and went on. He, uh, he was beaten with rods at one point, you know, wooden rods and sticks. Um, he was put in prison. Uh, he was shipwrecked. He was on a ship that ran aground and fell apart uh, in a storm, and he spent a night and a day in the ocean, uh, probably hanging on to some wood from the ship, and in the cold, and in the dark, and in the waves. And uh, so he, he knew about suffering. He got rejected by his people, by his friends. He knew about suffering. But you never read in any of Paul's letters anything about self-pity. Uh, instead, he rejoices always in his suffering. And it makes me think especially about that event in Philippi. And Paul and Silas go to Philippi and they preach and they get arrested and they get uh, beaten. And so they're probably tied to a pole and, and the magistrate begins to beat them and beats them until he just shreds them up. And they take him down and they put him in prison and they put their feet in stocks, these wooden things that hold your feet in place so you can't run off. But also means you, you sit there basically in the same position all night. Now, some of you can do that. That would be torture for me because I'm a squirmer. You know, I, when I sleep, my wife says I'm like the flying wall Linda's. You know, I'm just go everywhere. Uh, and, and so what would you expect to see if you went down there to look at Paul and Silas? You might expect to see them just weeping with pain and, and sorrow and sadness. And maybe you expect they'd be moaning from the pain because it, it had to hurt. But instead, what are they doing? They're praying and singing worship songs. And so I guess they had 
honey on the rock going over there, you know, and, uh, or something like that, and they're singing praises to God. It, it had to have just blown the minds of the prisoners uh, that were there, but they were rejoicing uh, because of these same truths. Another reason that we rejoice in our suffering is actually that suffering accomplishes stuff in our lives. And Paul gives us a list in these verses here. It's sort of a, a chain of reasoning. A preacher named John Murray said that gives evidence and proof uh, that we can rejoice in suffering. And the first thing he says is that suffering produces endurance. Okay, So suffering makes us tougher. Uh, athletes know about that, right? Uh, very few people... Okay, no people that I know of like could wake up in the morning, Monday morning, have never done any training and go run a marathon or do the Ironman thing, uh, especially without drugs. But uh, what do they do to train? Well, they suffer. Training is suffering. You go out, and I know they talk about runners high and all that. I just don't believe that exists. I don't run because when I run, it scares people and they think something must be chasing me and they all start running. It's really ugly. But, but we, you suffer when you train. And uh, whether you ride a bike or you play a game or you run or you lift, whatever you do, uh, you suffer uh, by pushing yourself and training. And because of that, then you get endurance. Uh, and that's why you see a lot of times people that have suffered have a great capacity for suffering and handle it so well. Suffering uh, endurance also produces uh, character. And so as you endure when you're suffering, you focus on the things that are important and you rely on the Lord and, and you develop a stronger character. <clears throat> and that's why you will see some of our uh, oldest saints that have really suffered and you will see their sweet dispositions and their willingness to always jump in and help. Uh, there was a, a little lady that we knew for years who sang in the choir and she came every Wednesday night and she came every Sunday and she was a little bitty thing and she was always bent over. And it turned out if you talked to her, she was in great pain because of her back. But she never mentioned it to anybody. But she faithfully came and she faithfully and joyfully served all that time. That was a great Christian character that had been developed. And then Paul says character produces hope. So when we endure suffering, uh, we grow in hope because we see the faithfulness of God to see us through. Once you have been through one difficulty and you have relied on the Lord and he has provided, you go through the next difficulty in a stronger sense because you know from experience what God will do. Uh, and that he would be with you through all of that. And then the last thing about the suffering is, uh, it's a verification of who you are. It is a verification indeed that you are a believer uh, and that there has been a transformation uh, that happens in your life. You're, you are one of those new creations that 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about. And so as you suffer and you endure, and you are built up, you see that God is working in your life, and he only works that way in believers, 
of Philippians 1, 6 says that he will continue the good work that he began in you and he will do it until the day of Jesus. And so until your death or until Jesus returns, he's constantly working to conform you to the image of Christ. We call that sanctification, constantly working to make you better. And some of that he does through suffering. And when that happens, uh, that shows you uh, that you are indeed a person that has been transformed by Christ. And then the last thing is, as a further evidence of our hope, God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he gave us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, and that is the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And his presence shows that we are indeed in Christ, that we are justified, that we are made right with God uh, because we do have that Spirit in us and the Spirit telling us of God's love. And, and, and you have probably had those events in your life, maybe in the worship service or reading your Bible or praying at home and you just, you know, you just feel the love of God come upon you and that's because you do have the Holy Spirit in you to do that. And the Holy Spirit also brings us hope because he is a taste of what will happen. Uh, you know, the Bible all the way through is a story of God wanting to dwell with his people. And ultimately in heaven, we see God dwelling with people. And today we get to see God dwelling because he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 even calls him the guarantee uh, of our inheritance, the guarantee of the eternal life that will ultimately happen. So we can have hope in suffering and we have hope as a result of suffering. And Paul says we won't be shamed by our hope. And by that he means we will be vindicated. A vindication means you're right all along. Right? And so when Jesus returns, what's going to happen? All believers are going to be resurrected and go to be with him forever. And that's going to be our vindication. Now, I'm guessing we're going to be so caught up in that, we won't be looking down and going, nah, 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 you know, stuff like that. You know, I was right. Uh, but we will be rejoicing in our vindication. And, and you even see the saints longing for that in Revelation as they're gathered before the throne and they say, How long? How long is it going to be till you come and vindicate us? And so we have that vindication to look forward to. So all these blessings and all these benefits, they belong to those who are in Christ. So if you sit here today as one who has been saved, who has come to Christ, you have those blessings to think about and incorporate in your life. Uh, if you're a person sitting here today that has not come to Christ in faith, I just think New Year's Day would be a great day to fix that. Uh, to come down and start this new year, give yourself to the Lord, ask him for forgiveness and to save you, and then you have a whole year before you to experience these very benefits. So our band is gonna come back up here and uh, gonna lead us in another song. I would urge you, I can say if you've not come to Christ that you would think about that today. Uh, and as the band plays, that you would really surrender yourself to Christ. <laughs>